Hello, my name is Rachel King, Programme Director of Word Christchurch. I'm pleased to introduce this 2020 Word Christchurch Spring Festival podcast, Landscapes of the Mind, Adventures in Mental Health, which is proudly presented by Pegasus Health. In this session, journalists Matt Kalman and Jahan Casanada talk with Ekant Veer about their experience with depression and their individual paths to mental health. In a mana, in a reo, in a karangatanga maha, o te ao. Tēnā koutou, tēnā koutou, tēnā tātou katoa. In the mana whenua, nai tua huriri, tēnā koutou. Koe kan vea taka wingo e kan mahia te whare wānanga waitaha. Kia ora everyone, my name is Akon Vea, I'm a professor at the University of Canterbury and it is my pleasure to welcome you to today's session on Landscapes of the Mind, Adventures in Mental Health. We have two first-time authors here who are presenting their first books. Uh, and it is, this wouldn't have happened if it hadn't been for the amazing work that the Word Festival does to pull these all together, but also the work of Pegasus Health. Now, Pegasus Health has done a huge amount of work to uh, support mental health in the region. Uh, it, a huge thanks to them and their Reading and Mind Scheme for Mental Health and Wellbeing that's provided through a partnership with medical, uh, Pegasus Health PHO, the Christchurch City Libraries, and the Christchurch Mental Health Education and Resource Centre. Reading in Mind provides selected books on a variety of mental health and well-being topics for people of all ages and backgrounds and links the books to the Merck's Library, Christchurch City, Waimakariri, Hurunui, and Selwyn District Libraries. You can vis- visit Reading in Mind's website at readingandmind.org.nz. We're also supported by our publishers, HarperCollins and Alan Unwin. Now, as I mentioned, both Matt and Jahan, who I'll introduce in a second, are first-time authors. It's their first book that they put out. And even though they're very different in form and structure and tone, there's so many similarities when we read both the books. And both of them have agreed as well when reading each other's books. First, I'd like to introduce Matt Kalman. Matt is an artist, blogger, speaker, father, husband, and writer. He's a trained artist, having graduated from Design and Art College of New Zealand with a Dip Arts in, with Honours in 2000, majoring in photography. He later retrained as a journalist in 2007 and worked at the Dominion Post until 2010. Since leaving his role at the Dominion Post, he's dedicated his life to being a father, as well as raising, as raising his daughters, and continues to be a freelance writer, photographer, and blogger. Jahan Kasanada is one of New Zealand's most acclaimed and journalists. He has worked as part of New Zealand's most iconic news shows, such as Close Up, Seven Sharp, and was the youngest ever regular reporter on TVNZ Sunday. In 2018, he won the Voyager Media Award for his best team for reporting on the Edgecombe floods, and that same year, he won a little prize called New Zealand Reporter of the Year from the New Zealand Television Awards. Jahan made a bold decision earlier this year to resign from his role in journalism and to focus on writing and other adventures. So please join me in welcoming these two amazing young men to talk about their books. And so the format today is going to be reasonably relaxed. Uh, I'm going to ask a few questions. We're going to just see how we riff off each other from there, uh, based on not just the books and what they've written, but also their experiences and the things that may not have made it into the books. And then towards the end, there will be time for questions. And so we'll open it up to people who are here to ask some questions. But the first question, given that the topic of this, these books is so stigmatized in society still, and it can be so confronting and so personal, um, was there anything in your minds, was there any doubts about writing a book like this? 
uh, and how did you overcome them? So, Johanna, I wonder if you can introduce yourself and think about that. I didn't want to write this book. Okay, well, that's a really good start. Okay. <laughs> I, it wasn't my idea. Writing a book had actually never been part of my plan in life. I know that for you, Matt, it was something that you'd thought about for a while, right? Yeah, long time. wasn't something that was on my radar. And in April last year, I just got back to Auckland after spending a number of weeks down here covering the Christchurch terror attack and its aftermath. And an email fell out of the sky and into my inbox from Alex Headley, who's the publisher for HarperCollins. And he said, look, um, enjoy your reporting, keen to chat about you know, future book projects. And I thought, it's strange to get an email like this from a, from a publisher. Usually we talk as journalists to marketing people and to publicists. So I emailed him back and said, look, we interview authors all the time. Send me a list of your upcoming releases and we can talk about <laughs> potential stories. Uh, and he replied and said, no, no, I'm interested in you writing a book. So uh, I, I went and had a coffee with Alex. And Alex had no idea at that point that I was really, really struggling with my mental health. I'd experienced three years of, of depression at that point and was really barely functioning. Uh, and I remember dragging myself down Ponsonby Road uh, after this, you know, sort of 18 hours in bed uh, and waking up next to the, the remnants of a McDonald's binge from the night before and took myself down to this cafe. And I said to Alex, okay, well, what, what are you interested in me writing about? And he was kind of like, well, I don't know. <laughs> um, and I, and it was, it was a, I thought, well, this is a nice offer. Um, I'm vaguely interested in writing something at some point, but I don't know what that would mm. be. It was many months later at the end of last year uh, when I decided to take six months off um, from my job and I decided to return to Wellington and have a break to try and put myself back together. I thought, okay, what am I going to do with that six months? And I was interested in writing something about mental health. I wasn't interested in just writing a woe is me story about my own journey. Uh, but I wondered, you know, a lot of people write these books when they're on the other side and they've come through... Uh, and they're able to speak from a place of health. And I just got curious about this idea of writing a book about a mental breakdown while you're having the mental breakdown, which is a dumb idea. It's a crazy <laughs> idea. Uh, but, but I was so curious about it, I couldn't separate the storyteller uh, out from my own experience. So uh, I signed a contract to write this book. And the interesting thing is the book is about rewriting your own life story. Mm. So that's what I've written, but actually it was the process of writing this book that allowed me to rewrite my own life story. Mm. So it's kind of meta in that way. Uh, but I wasn't apprehensive about putting it out into the world because I wasn't even sure whether I would finish it. I just gave myself a task. And, and you wouldn't have ever known that it was, it was going to help with your own journey before you'd even started writing. So it's amazing to start that mm. way. So. What are you, Matt? You, you, with yours? Well, I, I'd already, um, through the course of my adult, I plugged into the power of that personal story. Um, I've always loved memoir since um, I read Boy, Roald Dahl's Boy. Um, Roald Dahl was massive for me when I was a little kid when I first started reading, and from then I wanted to be an author. That was what I wanted to be, um, although I shelved that for, for about 35 years. Um, but just plugging into stories like John Kerwin's um, All Blacks Don't Cry, um, and more recently, a lot of Dan's um, stunning sober memoir, uh, Mrs. D's Going Without. Two amazing books where um, you could see yourself in their stories. So, and I wanted to be that sort of writer. So for a long time, I wanted to write a book, but it can't just be a book um, for the sake of writing a book. Every journalist has a book inside them, right, Jehan? But as they say, but it has to be a little bit more than that um, for me. So... Um, when I decided to write this book, I was through the very worst of my breakdown. Um, I was still struggling a lot, um, and I still am, but 
Um, I decided I was at the finish line of the coast to coast in 2018. I'd come to see my friends finish the race. And I kind of hoped that being there would inspire something in me. It would light a, it would light a spark that would sort of ignite and um, become this vehicle to, to try and recover and move through and make my life better. And, and it did. And I left the finish line. I was on my way home. And I decided almost at the same time I was going to do the race. But I was also going to write about it to, to bear witness to um, the journey as a journalist, but also as a human being, um, to, to, to just hold that flame for other people. Um, I think that's the power of, of our individual stories, that people can see in us um, something they relate to, and then they can take that, that torch and, um, and use it in their way to build their own roadmap. Mm. So that's really where it started. Mm. And it's, it's really beautiful reading both books. If you haven't had a chance to get the books, then please do get the books. But um, how... The journeys were so different. The backdrop was so different. Jahan, yours was jumping between story to story, and I was reading them going, oh, God, yeah, he was there. That, these, are, these are things that you were like, you know, these are iconic moments in the last, what, five, ten years mm. of New Zealand history. And yours, Matt, was much more, all right, it's all focused around the central area, but the whole time it's the journey is so dramatic the, the, the whole way through as well. So that sort of tone. I wonder if um, we, could, we could kind of switch a little bit because part of the narratives that have been presented here are about how you've changed your own story, how you've worked about changing the, 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 the thoughts in your head and things like that. And it's very much about the things that you have done. Um, but we shouldn't ignore the fact that we do have medical professionals. We do mm. have experts in this area. Um, and from my own research in the area, there's a lot of people who jump to something that's private and easy because then they don't need to declare this to anyone and hoping that's enough. Now, I wonder if you wanted to to share your own thoughts. Jahan, you have a reading about this that might fit, but I wonder if you want to share your own thoughts first or if you wanted to do your reading and then discuss that. What do you think? Sure, I can share a couple of thoughts. I, I think, um, in a nutshell, I really credit Sir John Kerwin with opening up the conversation around mental health in this country. Mm -hmm. You know, it's been about 15 years since he wrote the word hope in the mm -hmm. sand in that iconic uh, ad campaign, and the government put a lot of money into uh, educating people around depression and anxiety and a range of different aspects of mental health. One of the interesting things for me at the age of 30 is that I was part of the first generation in New Zealand that has grown up with a reasonably commonplace understanding of language around mental health. Now, mm. that's not to say there's no shame or stigma left. It very much depends on your cultural context, where you live, um, the nature of the people in your life. But certainly, uh, we have been brought up with a, with a reasonable understanding of that and encouraged to, to seek help. So... My, my answer to your question is I believe people should do whatever is necessary to save their life, whatever it takes to get well. So whether that's uh, going down a clinical route, using antidepressants, for example, whether it's talk therapy, whether it's exercise, um, do whatever works for you. So that's kind of my key caveat, my key message. But my intention with writing the book is that I've also seen that what we're doing is not working for enough people. Uh, I think it's great to continue encouraging people to ask for help, but we also have a broken and grossly underfunded mental health system. And as I found, uh, as many others do, when you do ask for help, the help often isn't there. It doesn't appear in the form in which you require it. Mm -hmm. Or even the people close to you in your own life do not have the, the knowledge or the understanding or the empathy to be able to support you. So really it comes back to the idea that, I mean, the language that I've used in this book is around storytelling, the idea that you are the main character in your own life story, you're also the author of that story, 
And, and the storytelling approach is very much another lens. It's a tool that you can use to explore your mental health and your mental distress. It's not a replacement for anything else that you're doing in that area. It's not a replacement for the advice of professionals. Sure. And I, I know just recently trying to help a whānau member go through that journey of finding someone who can help them. And I, I just reflected. I'm like, with all my privilege, with all the things I know, with all the context I have, I still can't get this person help. You know, it is mm. so deeply unfunded and, and not well supported that, that there are other options that are there but not in replacement of if, mm. you know, you need the help, then grab the help. What about you? Um, what Jihan says is right, you know, using everything you can mm. to throw at this problem, you know. You, um, but it really does come back down to you, your own personal mm. empowerment. So mm. um, I think people, we all underestimate ourselves a lot. You know, we don't really know what we're capable of. And in terms of... Um, taking control of our mental health, um, grabbing all the tools you can, practicing using the tools. Um, and it's far better than someone else saying this will work or that will work. You, you do grab anything you can. I mean, I've tried everything, yoga, meditation, all yeah. sorts of things I never thought I would do. I never thought I would go to a yoga class and bend my legs up the wall <laughs> backwards. And like, oh, I was never capable of doing that. Now I can do it. I've practiced, I've practiced, I've practiced, and I love yoga. It's a, I don't believe key. you. No, don't well, do it. that's fine. Do it. Show us. <laughs> oh, I would, I would. I would, but I just can't right now. Um, but yeah, like, the, the personal empowerment's the key. Like, you know, you, we, we're all capable of a huge amount of, of, um, of healing within ourselves, of, mm. of learning the way, the things that will work for us. So I'm no expert on depression, or neither of us profess no. to be, but we're experts on our own well-being because we've stopped and we've paused and looked at it and thought, right, okay, what can I do? Mm. And, and a lot of it is about moving, moving forward and taking some steps, um, putting yourself under a little bit of pressure, I guess, at times, learning how to, how to cope with adversity. I think we all want our lives to be free of pain and discomfort, we sort of seem to recoil from, from pain, whether mm. it's mental or physical. Yeah. But now I think the biggest change in my life is that, that I'm more observant. I just, you know, if, if there's pain going on, I mean, it comes and goes. Just as life ebbs and flows, now the pain is just a part of the life. And sitting with it, observing it and saying, hey, why might I be feeling that way instead of just sitting there and lying on the couch and going, I wish I wasn't feeling this way. Yeah. That, that's a subtle mind shift. And I think, you know, these, these subtle things can really have profound effects on yeah, our enjoyment of the journey. And that, that point of empowerment is so powerful but so hard to receive, especially when you're right down in the deep. Mm. deep you're not understanding much at that point. Don't. When you're right at that, that lowest point, um, making a coffee is hard. Like, doing mm. anything can be hard. I mean, I, I think it's hard to kind of have that logical brain or... Or even sort of just be able to relax in that moment. Or but, to even see a way out, you know. Yeah. Um, but all these things come with practice. And I, I think the come. last thing that you... The, well, the thing that you want in that situation is for somebody to say that they can fix you or they can cure you or there's a way through. And I think that's one of the really interesting and kind of perverse uh, consequences of the public health messaging that we've had over the last few years. This, our key message is ask for help, right? And that's a really great message. However, a message like that does have a flip side. Mm -hmm. And the flip side, I think to touch on Matt's point around empowerment, is a lot of people feel really disempowered when it comes to their mental health. Mm. They feel that they're not in control. They feel that their choices don't matter. They feel that they're a victim of an illness or something chemically that's happening in their brain. Uh, and as a result, it became, becomes, certainly for me, it became more and more difficult to make choices mm. that I thought would be, would be meaningful. 
So I think we need to, to acknowledge that. And yeah. actually, we need, I think, you know, our, our books are very, very different, and we've both used different strategies to improve our well-being. But the common thread is the idea that we do have agency, we do have autonomy over our stories, over our lives, over our, over our choices. Uh, and I think part of it is about learning to live with suffering, mm. learning to live with pain sure. and find meaning in it. Absolutely. The, the day I started making the most progress was when I stopped trying to fix it. Mm. And that's, um, yeah, there's no fixing it. Sorry. But there's um, learning to be a lot more content. Yeah, perfect. Jehan, why don't you read a, sure. a little bit from your book so you can get a flavour of what we could see in the rest Sure. Of As a kid, I was shy and sensitive. I struggled to find my place in the world. I didn't know how to process and articulate my emotions, so I bottled them up. When I grew into an adult, I continued living out of the toxic narratives that had formed during my childhood. I believed that my body was defective, that I was unlovable, and that I was no one's priority. I was able to get through life by performing and achieving, but once I moved to Auckland, those strategies began to fail. As my mental health deteriorated, I tried different strategies, hoping to improve my well-being. They made very little difference. My distress had been triggered by major changes in my lifestyle, including taking a new job in a new city and being separated from friends and family. When I sought medical help, I was guided down the well-worn path of clinical depression, a path I had never thought I would tread. I believed I had a disorder. I read screeds of information online about the corrosive effect of depression on the human brain. By the time my doctor and psychiatrist encouraged me to take medication, I was convinced that something had gone seriously wrong inside my head. If my mental health didn't improve, I expected that I would take my own life. Was that the depression talking? Actually, I'm pretty sure it was just me. Depression is the word our society has chosen to describe a particular kind of human experience. For four years, I used that word as shorthand for my mental distress. Those 10 letters represented all of my unwanted emotions. However, the notion that I had a mental disorder did not serve me well. In fact, it made me helpless. I believed an illness was in control of me, so I thought my decisions didn't and couldn't matter. That illness became a self-fulfilling prophecy. The more depressed I thought I was, the more depressed I became. The more I was worried about becoming suicidal, the more attracted I was to the idea of ending my own life. However, when I began to explore my life as a story through a non-medical lens, it looked very different. I identified two emotions that my character was struggling with. Firstly, I was experiencing loneliness. I was disconnected from the people I loved. Secondly, I was experiencing grief. I was grieving the loss of things that had never existed in the first place the loss of self-confidence that I never had, the loss of social connections I never had, the loss of the relationship and family I never had. This kind of grief, a longing for the invisible and intangible, is perhaps the most painful kind of grief because no one else can see what has been taken away from you. Loneliness and grief are not symptoms of a brain disorder. They're normal human emotions, and I didn't have to pathologize them. Over time, I came to the astonishing realization that my depression was largely the product of a story that I had written for myself. I had constructed a plot about a broken character who would eventually end his life in order to escape his suffering. 
As the author of that story, I had the power to reclaim it. I could rewrite my past. I could reinvent my character. I could even rewrite my ending. Through the process of storytelling, I could find meaning in my suffering, even if I couldn't erase it. This offered me a huge amount of freedom. I had written depression into my story, so I also had the power to write it out. Some people will be outraged by this idea. I can hear them shouting, are you telling me that my depression isn't real? How do you know that my brain isn't broken? And that's exactly my point. We don't know what is happening in our brains. Mental distress takes many forms and affects each of us in unique ways. I do believe that clinical depression exists, and I know that for some people, a diagnosis and medication will save their lives. If you fit into that group, I am stoked. But for others, including me, the medical approach to mental distress has been an abject failure. In order to stay alive, we must think beyond diagnostic labels and explore the stories that our lives are built upon. No, it's, it's a powerful way of putting it, but such an important way. I know with my own journey, when I was really low, the idea of talk therapy was just, just not something I was going to be in, mm. involved with. You know, I was just so bitter, so twisted. I just didn't want to get, come near it. I was so cynical about it. And then, but the, the, the medication, the clinical route, helped to take the edge off to allow those other things to, to, to really support you, mm. to really grow you forward. One or the other on its own, or assuming there's one way of doing it, it's just not going to work for everyone. We were talking earlier this idea as well that uh, people would assume, well, give me the fix and I'll fix it. You know, you break yep. your leg, you put a cast on, you might have to have an operation if it's really bad, but this, it's pretty much the same solution. With mental distress, it is multiple strategies, multiple ways to suit the first person. The person. And if the first one doesn't work, that's okay. Yeah. There are multiple other things to do. One of the things that with the All Right campaign, who I worked with for a number of years, um, kept saying is that you are the best... Uh, you're, the, you're the best expert on your own wellness. Yes. You're the be and, and I'm like, I love that. Except sometimes I think the best uh, thing for my wellness is Netflix and a beer. And that's not really good. <laughs> <laughs> you know, there has to be a balance as well. Um, so both of you have a background in journalism. You've spent some time uh, in journalism. Um, Jahan, your book in particular, very much uh, with the backdrop of a lot of the things going on in New Zealand at the time. Do you think that helped or hindered writing your first book? Matt, what, what are your thoughts? It, it, well, um, becoming a journalist taught me how to write. <laughs> but um, I think as a writer, I had the touch that I've got now before I learned how to write. So, um, yeah, it helped a lot in terms of structure and being able to physically be able to write the book, technically write it. Um, so the writing of it really wasn't that difficult. Mm. It was um, more the ideas and how it was going to come together. I can imagine authors all around the city going, I hate you. The writing yeah. wasn't that difficult. <laughs> it oh, kind yeah. of flowed I, out. Like, I, um, but, I find writing really easy. <laughs> yeah. But I think also, like, I, the journalism um, in Jahan has covered a lot of really big stories and, and, and important stories mm. about some very heavy things. And when I was in the newsroom in the Don Post, um, um, a lot of the stories you cover stay with you. Um, mm. So you build up these kind of scars from that. Um, you're not the, the, the main player in it. You, you're, you're just on the edges, really, and you're kind of bearing witness. Mm. But you still take a little bit of that trauma away from these things. Sure. So you get an understanding of, of, of what other people go through, and I think um, that gives you that kind of insight. That actually helped me a lot in, in starting to analyse what was going on for me because I think um, Jihan's talked about you know, writing other people's stories and, 
telling other people's stories and I was doing the same thing, but I was ignoring what was going on mm. in my own head, mm. um, in my own life uh, for far too long. And mm. when, I, when I finally started to look at it, um, the writing was very therapeutic and it helped me actually organise what was going on in a way that I could kind of um, go forward with. Wow. What about you, Jahan? Going from the short form to the long form, how did that? Yeah, and also coming from a commercial TV discipline, yeah. which is a which is a commercial discipline. It's ratings driven, and you know I think a lot of people don't understand. Uh, and this is just not a TVNZ thing, but the nature of the market in New Zealand is that you know you come in the next morning and you see ratings that break down all the different channels. You can see minute by minute. You know, you, you know at what point someone changed the channel in the middle of your story, the point at which they got bored. So, you know, it's a really, it's a really tough job. Oh, and, tough. you know, working on the Sunday program, uh, which was, you know, where I always wanted to end up, for those four years, we were constantly up against The Bachelor or Married at First Sight or any number of reality shows on the other two channels. And so when you're trying to do a, you know, bringing along another story about um, some sort of trauma or uh, issue in our society, which was the kind of work that I loved doing and found really meaningful, there's a real uh, impetus to make that relevant to people and to hook them in and to keep them engaged throughout the story. So switching from that into a, into a discipline where, you know, and my book is, I guess, relatively short. It's 50,000 words, but to me that felt like a huge amount of space, and so I guess I was constantly second-guessing you know, am I losing people here? Am I going to, you know, um, be able to hold them for this book? And one of the things that I did was to revisit uh, 12 or 13 of the stories that had really affected me over mm. the years. And I actually went back and re-interviewed uh, some of those key players. So Daniel Rockhouse, uh, who was the hero of the Pike River disaster, Liam Malone, the blade-running Paralympian. So I, I went back and spoke to a lot of these people, and their stories are, are built into the book as well. Mm -hmm. So yeah, it was uh, very helpful to be able to talk to them again. And that presence of others in both your books, I, I know your wife's here tonight, um, and Matt, and she played a, a huge role in, in your story and in your book. Jahan, you had a number of people like you've spoken about, but also Tommy in particular, mm. who was always there. Um, talk, talk to us a little bit about, you know, you talk about you as the central character of your book, but those supporting act actors, actresses, characters, you know. Firstly, I'd just like to... Um say happy anniversary to my wife Ranui, she's in the front row there. Um, 17 years married today and we've had a wonderful life together. Um, but my breakdown blindsided Ranui in, in the worst way. She, she knew something wasn't right but she didn't know the full extent because I had it. Um, so the day when everything fell apart for me, um, it was really hard on her too. But I'd written the first major draft of the book, or probably the second draft, and it was, it was getting towards the end of the process, and my editor, um, Alan, and I'm with Jenny Helen, who's here, here today also, said, Matt, you've got this wonderful woman, and in in, she's sort of in the shadows in the background of this book. She's there, but I, I want to know more about you know, what she went through, and, and I want to hear her voice more. So we sat down, I interviewed Ranui, just like I would interview any other person. <laughs> you know, we sat down with the voice recorder, and we put it there, and... Um, right, Ranui, so, uh, <laughs> so it was a bit awkward at first, as normal interviews are, but actually I thought I, thought I knew what she went through because I was there and I witnessed it. Because mm. of, but, you know, when, when you're in the space of depression, I mean, a lot of it is about you and you, you do worry about sucking the life and the energy of those around you away. Um, and it's this constant thing like, you know, you do require a lot of attention, but then you also are very, very mindful that, that you're having this effect on everyone. Um, and I just assumed I knew what she went through, and I had no idea, um, really, until I asked her. And, and so that 
really added a huge element to the book that um, she was able to, to tell me what it was like to live with me. Mm. And that's helped us going forward. It's actually from that moment that our relationship um, took another step to a, to a better place where, where I can be more mindful of the effect I have on her. And we, can, we talk about this a lot now. Mm. And, um, and it was a real gift. So I'm really pleased that Jenny got me to do that. Mm. Um, but the, the support people, I wrote the book for people who were suffering distress. Mm. But I also wrote it for those people that stand alongside them. Absolutely. People like Ranui. Yeah. They're so important because they have to be so patient. And it's so hard on them. And, and, it, and it tears relationships apart. Mm. And it's just what happens. I'm really lucky that we're, we're strong as ever. But um, I don't take that for granted. No. You have a number of people in your story, some people that you are trying to help and trying to support in times of crisis, Jahan, and then there's in the backdrop there are these people who you're turning to and they're turning to you as well from time to time. Yeah, so the book is dedicated to my best mate, uh, Tommy Livingston, who was a significant um, force in, my, in that four-year period of my life and in my recovery as well. And I think similar to Matt, I think those people often very much get lost when these stories are told. Mm. And I think also we gloss over how, how ugly the reality can be for those people and, and what they have to put up with and what they have to endure. And the reality is, for me, I had a, I had a, a best mate who supported me throughout that four years, but particularly the last two years, which were really, um, really intense. And I was offloading a lot of my emotions. Mm. I was speaking very freely about my distress. He felt a lot of responsibility uh, because the kind of person he is to try, and, to try and help me, particularly when other people in my life, other friends, uh, didn't or couldn't show up in the way that I needed to. So I knew quite early on that this was never going to be something that one person could carry, and I tried to build a kind of support structure around myself um, but as I mentioned earlier, for various reasons, you learn that not everybody can actually, not everybody is cut out for this, right? Mm. Not everybody has the, the will or the ability or the skills or whatever to, to endure um, this kind of distress. And ultimately what happened is my, the language I use in the book is that my story ended up contaminating Tommy's story. Mm. My distress was absorbed by and was passed on to him. That led to, um, uh, and it's all in the book, but a fairly intense period of distress for him that then required him to go and get help. And I was like, that was a huge wake-up call for me. That was the moment where I was like, okay, this is now having flow-on effects to someone else. Mm. And he allowed me to be really open in the book and share, um, share that because he, his intention was um, that people like him in this situation, people who are supporting someone, mm. are able to see themselves in this narrative as well. Um, so that's something I really want to acknowledge and, and highlight, Sorry. is that this is not meant to be easy. And if you're supporting someone who's going through this kind of distress, your needs matter. <laughs> you're, um, you know, the, it's like the old thing of you can't pour from an empty cup. And often we're so focused on the, the actual person who's struggling, we don't recognize the flow-on effects that yeah. are... And, 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 of course, it's a vicious cycle, right? Because the whole reason you don't ask for help in the first place is you don't want to seem like a burden. Mm, no. So you think that you're doing the right thing by asking for help and trusting and being vulnerable with the people around you. But it's... I mean, how did you find... It's, there's no magic formula, is there, around... I think the people closest to me, you know, had to bear the most of the burden, mm. right? Mm. And, um, and they were, were, were willingly did that. 
Um, there were various other people that I, that I mentioned, many of them in the book, but not all of them, mm. who had an incredible effect on, on me. Just knowing that they understood was enough. Um, so yeah, you, you're kind of, you are, you are aware of that burden side of things. Um, and I guess that's why you hide some of it. Yeah. Or most of it sometimes. And equally, Tommy said that he could write his own book about that four years. And so it's recognising that I'm a supporting character in, a, in everyone else's stories Absolutely. as well. Mm. So, I mean, the book that I've written is the story of my life and the story with me as a central character. But I also, throughout that period, recognised that I hadn't ceased to function as a supporting character in other people's lives. Mm. So I guess what I tried to do is, even while experiencing distress is try to show up for other people in my yeah. life and try and be the person that I needed to be in their stories as Absolutely. well. And that's huge, John. Like, um, early on, my counsellor, Anne-Marie um, um, Holland, told me to so suggest that I should turn out from my depression mm. rather than folding into it, mm. which to me meant um, you know, helping others, um, connecting with others. And, and I think going through something like this, it does, it does make you a little bit more in tune with the struggles mm. of others without necessarily them telling you. You can kind of tell now when people are showing the signs, um, or when people aren't quite quite right. Mm. Yeah. And so, yeah, I mean, it takes a number of forms, but yeah, just just turning outwards rather than folding in and, and, and being just within yourself is is mm. a really big way to heal. But it also helps others, and it spreads something positive beyond yourself mm. to those around you. It takes a level of authenticity and trust, though, to, to really share that with someone. You, you don't share this stuff with everyone. You know, both of you described about how you were functioning at a very high level despite everything this is going on in the background. By having that person that you can trust, that person who, who knows you or can spot the, the, the subtle changes that, that will say something's not quite right in this person and you be honest with them enough to do that. We've talked a lot about your book, Mac. Do you think we can hear a couple of words from your book? I think we could probably manage it. Yeah, I'm sure we could do it. You've got a prop as well, so. Oh, it's not a very, it's not a very exciting prop. Yeah, to, <laughs> part of the book thing is like using your imagination, right? So, <laughs> it's not much yet, but it'll. So, um, metaphors uh, for my internal struggles formed in my mind frequently um, during my training. So, so if you don't know about my book, I basically trained for the coast to coast, 2019 coast to coast, longest day. Um, and use it as a vehicle for recovery um, from the internal struggle. Anyway, to the point, um, much of the book was actually written during the solitary hours on the bike, running the trails, or sitting in the kayak. I'd form vivid pictures in my mind, whole sections of text, all the time making connections between my inner and outer landscapes. This particular reading I'm going to... Um, I'm going to um, write, read out as a good example of that. Um, it was a few weeks after I'd had a serious bike accident in which I broke several ribs and collapsed the top portion of my left lung. I'd been on my way to yoga and was running late to nab my preferred back row spot. I'm sure many of you can relate. <laughs> my mind was stressed and distracted. Um, my more profound fuck-ups tended to happen when I was distracted. Another example was 10 minutes into the shoot for the cover of this book, overlooking Whakaraupo, Littleton Harbour. When I snapped two fairly crucial ligaments in my left ankle running to fetch a pair of gumboots from my car. The money shot was captured two days later. My by then swollen purple ankle was heavily strapped beneath my sock. That's not actually the reading. I'm going to start reading. <laughs> my ribs were still a little tender when I arrived at Whatanui Pool for a kayak rolling session run by Downriver Kayaking Club two and a half weeks after my accident. These sessions tended to book out within minutes of being posted on their Facebook page, and I'd been lucky enough to grab the last spot. 
We carried our boats in and paired up, then took turns in the boats with one partner standing in the water to help the other roll up if needed. I'd frequently dreamed about capsizing in the gorge during the coast to coast and then seamlessly rolling myself upright in one smooth sweep of my paddle to the cheers and impressed nods of onlookers and rescue crews. <laughs> they saw an expert paddler capable of recovering from any misfortune the river could deliver. In my dreams, my kayak roll might have been perfect, but in reality, mastering it takes much practice and technique. As your boat tips sideways and plunges you under the water, you keep hold of your paddle and reach your arms down one side of the boat, trying to extend the paddle blades above the surface of the water. You have to imagine I'm upside down here, which really helps. Holding your paddle lightly, you sweep the blade across the surface of the water with your front arm extended and your back hand hugged up by your chin, arm, belted, arm bent at the elbow. Through the water, you watch your front arm all the way, and as your arms move, you lift your hip and engage your knee, pinning it up into the top of your boat. You rotate almost in slow motion, relaxing, slow and relax is best, and then you're up again. Done correctly, it's balletic. My first dozen attempts were anything but. I pulled quickly down on the paddle blade and plunged into the water, and I was soon thrashing about, waiting to be rescued. Your first instinct is to pull, pull down in order to pull yourself up, to lift your head up out of the water as quickly as possible to breathe air again. But that logic doesn't work here. I tried to practice the manoeuvre while still on the surface, but nothing makes sense until you're under, where everything is switched into reverse. I plunged down again, and my mind went blank. Soon I was trying to muscle my way to the surface again with brutal slashes of the paddle. Sam Milne was there to help, and his patient, gentle approach was key. He got me to focus on the small parts of the technique, one thing at a time, till everything clicked. Not bad, but much slower, Sam says. I hope Sam's not here. <laughs> he does talk a little bit like that. Good. Now three times slower than that. Now, now twice as slow as that. At the end of the night, I did my first graceful, easy, unassisted roll, snail pace slow, steady, and technically sound. I knew that I'd done it right because I felt absolutely no resistance. It was like turning over in bed. I wanted to remember the feeling for next time. I left satisfied with my progress. Later that night, I thought about how learning to roll my kayak mirrored my inner battle with depression, the fighting and the thrashing, the incredible effort, the concentration and focus on being well month after month, week after week, day after day, minute after minute, second after second. How exhausting it could be and was. Going upside down, the feeling of being submerged, disoriented, then feeling the tension and fear build, my first instinct to panic. Then as I hang there and hold my breath, I realize I'm not sinking, and I'm not going to drown if I just focus on what I need to do to reach the surface again. I roll up and suck vital oxygen into my empty lungs. I'm back in the world of light, tao marama, upright again. I'm okay. Everything is going to be all right. In time, the effort recedes, and I no longer need to think. I'm just doing it. It's effortless. Move my kayak back to the well, he's, stage. He's, he's well trained around there. You tidies up as well. This is great. So I always like to ask these sorts of questions at the end of uh, when we're coming towards the end of the time. But what are the stories that didn't make it into the into the uh, into the book? You know, there's got to be so much going on that you think I would love to have told this bit as well. I would love to have seen how this would play out. Is there anything in there that you think, oh, you know, I wish I could have expanded upon that a bit? Yeah. I guess there's a whole other book in 
my experience with depression around spirituality. So I think um, one thing that I touched on quite briefly in the book is uh, the model of human wholeness and well-being that uh, Sir Mason Dury developed called Te Whare Tapafa, which is the house with four walls. Uh, the walls are mental, physical, whānau, and spiritual health. And I think often when we have conversations, particularly in a secular Western context, we try and explain our suffering and our pain and our distress in a mental context, mm -hmm. but actually we often ignore the other three walls. Um, so, you know, I grew up in a Christian family. My faith has always been a part of my life and is a significant part of this journey for me. It's not something I've um, explored hugely in this book because it was a different kind of book that I was writing. Um, but I think there's a really interesting conversation for us to have as a, as a country, as a multicultural country, um, and as a, as a secular Western country around what is the intersection between spirituality and mental health? How do we find meaning in the distress that we experience, whatever that looks like for you? Um, what about values? What about beliefs? What about purpose? How do all of those things shape our experience of mental distress? So um, maybe there's another book in that for someone somewhere at some point down the track. But I think that's an important part of this conversation that we need to be having because we know that if you can find meaning in your distress, you can often find a way through it, even if you can't change the circumstances. It very much echoes what you were saying earlier, Matt, about that whole idea of not wanting to eliminate this from who mm. you are, but being part of who you are as well. Absolutely. What are, what are the stories that maybe you want to expand upon or maybe... I, I wouldn't have wanted to put anything in, else into the book itself, but there was a, much, a lot of learning since the book. I mean, it mm -hmm. still continues. I mean, you could keep writing about this topic um, forever mm. because we learn as we, go, as we grow. Um, but this book encapsulates my first attempt at the longest day, mm. and the second attempt at the longest day was just as an incredible experience that whole year. You meet so many people... I had a coffee with um, one of the school um, mums. Um, I just decided to do the race, and, I, and I'd singled her out, so I knew she'd done the race, and said, oh, let's have a coffee. And she just said, listen, Matt, you're going to have the most incredible year, the people you meet, the experiences you're going to have, and it really set the tone for my mindset, having to learn how to kayak, having to learn how to ride a bike, well, I knew how to ride a bike, but how to learn how to ride a bike with purpose across the country. Um, and in getting ready to do this race, um, if I'd just slaved away and done it as I used to do things, you know, mm. training for my half marathons and beating myself with a great big stick to keep training and keep going and not really enjoying it or not really being satisfied with the outcome, um, it would have been a very empty year. Mm. But I had all these rich experiences and I got to see some of the most incredible parts of the country with other people moving forward, facing adversity, and just being around these people inspired that kind of thing in my life, and it continues to. Yeah. Very cool. And just that, like you're saying, that adversity part as well, and overcoming that adversity, you shared a little bit with this reading, but also I think there's a whole chapter called You're Going to Be Shit at This, which, which I think is great. <laughs> that was about kayaking, actually. <laughs> <laughs> and there's another chapter entitled Embracing Fucking Up. Yeah. <laughs> um, I could write a few more chapters about that. But the, yeah, and the, but it's, it's especially, and it's it's... I've generalized here from a with masculinity telling you you need to be in control you need to be a mm. provider you need to be you need to be strong and then admitting actually you know you can be a fuck up you can be shit at this and still embrace those things as part of your journey is, is powerful. I, I met Gurney um, Steve Gurney nine times coast to coast champion absolute legend of a man mm. he did a skill session out at um, out at the 
yacht club um, near Sumner on the estuary there. And we were all these hopefuls of the 15 of us turned up to, to get the pearls of wisdom from Steve Gurney. It was free. We just turned up. It was amazing. And um, so, actually, I can't remember what was the question. <laughs> I was talking about Gurney all of a sudden, just, and I've lost my train of thought. So have I. So, no, uh, just, oh, just accepting that this... That oh, yeah, that's right. So, you know, I, I fucked up royally in front of Gurney. Like, it's in the book. You'll read about it. It's, it's absolutely ridiculous what I did in front of him. I mean, my hero. I probably put so much pressure on myself. I wanted to impress him. And I, I impressed upon something upon him, but it wasn't, it wasn't that I was capable or very skilled or um, coordinated even. Um, quite, quite the opposite. But he said... I think I'd fallen out of my boat doing some elementary turn in, in about two foot of water. It was just awful. And he said, he said, Matt, Matt, this is good, Matt. This is great. You're, you're learning. These are the stepping stones to success. Mm. Learning, you know, fucking up and failing and doing all this stuff as a stepping stones. And that's such a good lesson because it's, it allows us to continue to fuck up until we slowly improve. Improved. And instead of being scared to have a go. As long as we don't take those fuck-ups and put them on our identity and think, I'm no. a fuck-up. Mm. Well, that's so, right. I fucked up, There's not a fine I'm one. A, yeah. Uh, I, are we allowed to swear at this? <laughs> <laughs> oh, so... Oh, no, it's all right. Oh, 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 we've got... It's OK. Uh, I'm going to blame The first word one. might be interesting. <laughs> <now>. <laughs> that's right. <laughs> um, so I, I didn't introduce myself much, but my background's in marketing. So let's do a little bit of that just to support you guys, but also support... Uh, the people here, if they're thinking of purchasing the book, is there a particular person you think that would really benefit? You know, was there some, is there someone that you would really love to pick this up? Is there a particular audience that, that thinks you would benefit from this? Everyone in the world. Everyone in the world. Four billion book sales, that would be bloody lovely. Exactly. Four billion? How many people in the world? Eight billion. Eight I billion. more than that. Yeah. But, um, look, I, I would like... Um, I, Anyone who's experiencing mental distress or has experienced mental distress, yeah. it's, it's another take on, you know, sure. um, this whole conversation. And in particular, young people. I mean, if you're, um, if you're able to teach young people some of these concepts at an early age and give them that sense of empowerment, then I think mm -hmm. it sets them up really well, particularly if they haven't experienced challenges yet. So, yeah. I, I'll put in a plug, other than everybody, for the allies. <laughs> Those people who don't necessarily yeah. get to, who, who only experience it through their loved ones or mm. something like that. I, I thought it was, it, both books were a really rich, detailed ex example of, of how an ally can be and the pain that they might go through as well. And it helps those of us who have experienced this ourselves to maybe have a little bit of empathy uh, onto, onto what we put other people through. Um, I'm looking at the time. We've got a couple of minutes. We are, well, uh, we'll not forget that. Uh, he's, he's giving me a nod uh, for something else. Um, what do you think the next adventure is for you guys? Is there going to be a third try at the, 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 the longest day? I've, I just heard about Jahan's adventure recently. Jahan? What adventure was this? You were down south, weren't you, in Thai Happy? Oh, well, up north. Oh, in, north sorry, in, Thai. in Thai Happy, Thai yeah. Happy. I'm, uh, so I'm still doing journalism, and I've spent the last week with wool farmers across the North Island learning about the state of the wool industry, so that's been a real education, uh, and very, very thrilling. Uh, but uh, <laughs> it didn't mean it like that. But um, I, I'm enjoying telling stories on, on uh, TV and in print. I had to step away from it for a while yeah. to put myself back together, and also find out who I was without that, because I'd relied on that persona and identity for so long, and now I'm able to do it on my own terms, but I'm also really enjoying the work I'm doing in the mental health awesome. space. 
Not, not everyone can do that, by the way. Like Jahan, I mean, I, I was a stay-at-home dad. I was very lucky mm. not to have been in the workplace when, when I had my breakdown. Mm. Um, I, I was able to take all the pressure off for a bit. It was a really important step, and, and I applaud Jahan for recognising that he needed that time out. And not everyone can do it. I mean, you, people have responsibilities. Mm. But if you can do it in some form, it's just like a reset. so, so important. Yeah. Reset. Yeah. You've been dabbling in a bit of poetry. I have. Do you want to share a little? I will. So this is weird. We're doing a book reading from something that's not in the book. I don't... Is this allowed? <laughs> We've got the mics. I guess it's all right. I've hardly written a word since I wrote the book. Life's become busy. We're actually renovating a house in the moment. But a few weeks ago, um, I, I tagged a fairly significant 170-kilometre multi-sport race, or Portuguese Motu Challenge, onto the end of an epic school hole's Farno road trip, which took us from Christchurch all the way to the marvellous Whangarei Heads and many glorious places in between. Two days before the race, um, my coach, Karen Muller, sent me a message with some of her characteristic measured and wise advice. She wrote, have a great race. Remember, pacing, fuel, and fun, smiling face emoji. On the same day, I got a very different message of support from my mate, the superb athlete, Holly Weston, who's here today. Give it heaps and fight out there, Matt. Magic is made in the pain cave. To say I was feeling a bit torn is understatement. So I, did I stick to the plan and stay within the zone of comfort? Or did I flirt with that treacherous red line? The risk, the risk of blowing up in the most inglorious ray, way was very real. Did I dare to test what I was really capable of? This poem, my first, was mostly written while floating down the Waiweka River during the latter stages of the race, from well and truly inside the pain cave. Let me take you there. And you're going to be the judge of whether this is going to be my first or last poem, I guess. So <laughs> you can be honest. The Pain Cave. A good friend told me before more too, remember ma magic happens in the pain cave, in the uncertain spaces between comfort and, and, and ambition, when you reach deep within to truth and self, to unending possibility or finality, on the narrow knife ridge between life and death. Magic happens in the pain cave, like when that all-too-familiar searing tears through hamstring or quad, or both at once. One minute moving like rolling cloud, the next turning to cold, hard stone. Magic happens in the pain cave, when the tunnel vision of effort recedes to reveal a glorious bird's eye view of tree ferns in the valley, and countless fleeting conversations, connections made along a chain of human endeavour. Magic happens in the pain cave, disappearing into a solitary, lonely place before returning to familiar faces at transition. You cry in pain, then laugh as your hamstring constricts again with the mere effort of changing your shoe. Magic happens in the pain cave. As you reach the high point, climbing up out of your pain, out of yourself, you greet volunteers Auntie Jo and Uncle Charles with high fives. It's all downhill from here. They lie as you disappear on foot down the dusty gravel road. Magic happens in the pain cave. In the hardest moment of the race, 200 metres from the top of a seemingly endless twisting hill of road, grinding on the pedals with feet hinged to ease cramping calves. All sound stops. And you savour a brief moment of clarity and peace amid the turmoil. Then a grey-bearded man on the side of the road says, you're nearly at the top, and it's all downhill from there. That old chestnut. Magic happens in the pain cave. In painstaking inch-by-inch progress, the sheer release of bike-rattling descents, and the laser-beam focus on the unbroken painted white line ahead, and in looking further beyond to the languid bony Waiweka below. 
Magic happens in the pain cave. In the terrifying instant, the kayak bow snaps back on itself as it collides with a rock wall at 25 kilometres per hour. You practically throw yourself from your broken boat with the shock of it all. On the river's edge, panting, you unwind half a roll of coal black duct tape around the broken nose to close the gaping holes before continuing. Keep going, man. Don't give up. Magic happens in the pain cave with tepid water and urine lapping at your calves. You glimpse a straight column of water against a dark, mossy rock wall, and it reminds you of a Ralph Horteddy painting with his delicate shafts of white paint. And you're Euchid Man, you're eclipsed. Magic happens in the pain cave, in the grief, the setbacks, the joy, the lasting satisfaction, and in all the spaces in between, in the journey, in reaching the destination, the before and the after, magic happens in the pain cave. So we do have a couple of quick, uh, time for a couple of quick questions. Can I implore upon you to make them quick questions and to make them questions? <laughs> oh, so. We have a couple of mics going around, so please. Oops. Hi, uh, Matt, in your book, um, it, it wasn't just about your exercise um, journey and your mental health journey. It was also about your cultural journey, and mm. which was a huge part of it. And I think in the, the course of the book, you actually became secure in your own cultural identity, Absolutely. which you weren't at the beginning. Can you, exp can you expand a bit on that? Yeah, so um, I've, I've never been ashamed of being Māori because that's not something to be ashamed of and never was and never will be. But I was always, um, I grew up Pākehā in a Pākehā household. There was always a disconnect between how I identified as Māori, how I felt being Māori was. Um, and I was always searching to try and bridge that, that chasm that had been broken somewhere along my family line. Um, at a certain point um, after my breakdown, I was in bed with Ranui and, and I just said, listen, I, I think I need to go and get my, my tāmoko done. It was just a decision to start to become, just to be the person that I already was, rather than searching for that person. So I, I travelled up to Porirua and, and, and received my tāmoko. It was just, as, as I looked at it after it was finished um, and looked at these beautiful lines that, that had been drawn freehand, you know, there was no pre-design or anything. It just happened as it happened, seven and a half hours in the chair. And I looked at this and, the, and he was telling me all the elements, um, the, the amazing artist that did it. And it just fitted. It was like it was always meant to be, be there. And coming home, I just sort of started walking tall and, and, and myself. And it was kind of quite a profound thing um, to reconcile these sides of yourself. And it seemed to be kind of a big, big part of my puzzle. Comment first. Thanks so much um, for being so frank about such um, difficult parts of your lives. It's um, it's really cheering that men can talk like this. Thank you. Secondly, um, you've both done so much work, kind of internally, getting your own house in order, or at least understanding what order might look like. Um, you've talked about internal distress, but the world around us has a lot of distress in it. Mm. And I'd like to know, um, has this? Um, journey um, changed your approach to that? Like, you talked a little bit about vicarious trauma, but how do you now approach the external world? Do you protect yourselves? Are you more present? 
Mm. One of the things that I touch on in my book is the impact that the narratives around us have. And we're absorbing stories from our culture, from our family, from the media, from Ashley Bloomfield at the moment, you know, from all these different forces. And um, I think you have to have a really strong sense of what kind of character you are in your own story and what that story is about, where that story might be going in order to be centered in the world. Uh, there's a concept in the book that I call narrative poverty, which is the idea of um, having a sparse story or an incomplete story or no story for your life. And I genuinely believe that if you don't have a coherent narrative, a coherent story that explains who you are, where you've come from, and where you might be going, that the world will gladly write you one for free. Mm. So that's the key idea of this book, is to take authorship so that you can, you're going to have a story whether you like one or not. We're hardwired for storytelling. That's how we understand the world. And our stories are shaped by our trauma and by everything else that's happening externally. So um, I think that's the challenge, is not to separate ourselves out from the world or from those challenges. But if you have a coherent story, mm -hmm. uh, then you can engage with those challenges with a bit more confidence. Yeah, I think, I think it's about resiliency as well. Um, you see a lot of stuff happening in the world at the moment. Um, things are difficult. It's been, a, it's been a kind of an amazing, tumultuous year, really. I mean, it's been difficult, but also quite amazing and beautiful at the same time. But um, I think... Yeah, just observing what's going on with some empathy and humanity is key um, mm. for me. Like, I keep it pretty simple. Control what I can control, which is my direct mm. environment. Mm. Try to spread some good around there and, and, and give to my fam family and, mm. and be good to myself. So, yeah, I think that's, that's where I'm at with it. I remember listening to a clinical psychiatrist, clinical psychologist, sorry, say that a lot of distress is caused by worrying too much and you should just care less. And just, and then and you'd be fine. And I'm like, I don't think that's a healthy response. Mm. But I think that word control, determine and know what are the things that you can control, mm. and what are the things you cannot, and and really put your heart and effort into into affecting those things that you feel you can have influence and and uh, impact in, but not necessarily burdening yourself with all the things that are impossible to control. And just to expand on that, mm. and I know I keep banging on about the storytelling stuff, but I honestly think that this is so powerful. So the, the, in terms of the idea of control, you cannot change the events in your past. You cannot erase COVID. Mm. The events that happen in our lives are very much fixed, but it's never too late to change the story that you wrap around those events. Mm. And that was where the inspiration for the book came from, is that I spent 10 years sitting with people who've been through far worse stuff than I will ever experience. Mm. And the common thread, the people that managed to overcome were those who managed to change the story that they were telling themselves mm, yeah. about what had happened, about their place in it, and uh, the prospects for their future. And if you can write a more hopeful future, then you can live into that future, and that's so, kind of what you did through your exercise. And it was striking how people you interviewed after the mosque attack, mm. um, how they responded to it with yes. love and, 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 and with, without kind of that hatred towards yes. the person. Um, that was just really powerful, powerful for me. Example and it was that. a really incredible mm. thing for everyone in the community to say, these are who these people are. Mm. You know, how good's that? Fantastic. It sounds like we could carry on for a while, but unfortunately our time is up. So I do want to say thank you to both Jahan and to Matt. Thank you for writing the books. Thank you for taking the time to come down and share it with Thanks us. Thanks for coming. Thank you.